This is a Broad Pods production. This is Pause Beyond the Court. Playing a team sport when you're a young woman creates friendships, community, and fitness, along with delivering a few challenges too. Joe White, a mum and qualified social worker, has gathered those in the know from teens to experts to Olympic champs and beyond to make navigating those challenges much easier with a bonus mindful moment in each episode. Hi, I'm Joe, and next up we talk to Professor Alex Parker and Dr Mary Wessner, both at Victoria University. I wanted to understand more about the complexities around mental health, well-being and safety for young women when they're playing sport. What does mental health mean to you? Like your health, but like mindfulness. How you're feeling and you're like, how you're you're going in life. How you're going mentally. What do you do for your mental health and wellbeing? How do you look after yourself? Play basketball. I like playing basketball and like taking care of myself, so like skincare and stuff. Probably playing basketball and listening to music. Alex and Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, You both have recently been doing a recruitment for a national survey to improve the safety and well-being of women in sport. We have. So it's a real area of growth at the moment. We're looking at the desperate need to understand more about the difference between males and females or women and men athletes. Um, For years, most of the data has been on men and trying to just transfer and to see is it relevant for women. But now we know that there's so many different issues that women do face, not only from a physiological perspective, like preparing for pregnancy or returning after having a child, but also some of the risk factors. Um, things like uh, unstable employment or low salary, being more prone to harassment or media harassment and also not having as many opportunities to, you know, go into media or straightforward or easy pathways into coaching when they've ended their elite career. So we're really interested to understand what some of the things, um, what, what are some of the things can be modified, what can be changed and how can things be improved by informing some mental health and wellbeing strategies in the sport. So your work focuses on advancing women and girls in sport and physical activity. Why is this so important? I think the main thing that we do know from physical activity and certainly um, just overall physical activity plays such an important role in someone's physical health and mental health. We know that it's crucial to prevent a lot of the onset of mental health conditions but also chronic disease in later um, later stages in life. It's absolutely critical. And then we also know that for girls um, in adolescence, it's sort of the highest period of time of dropping out of organised sport as well for a range of reasons. Um, One of the recent studies that one of our colleagues has done has looked at some of that data and seen that girls do have different attitudes to why they engage in sport compared to boys. And the competitive aspect does appeal to some but doesn't appeal to all of them. And so there's also this um, part of is this the right place for me? Um, how do I fit and also the role of the coach um, is so critical for those junior years as well. So some of that data is just sort of starting to come out and give a bit of a picture about what, what conditions might need to be different to appeal to maintain girls in sport and how important that is for their well-being as well. 
I was speaking to someone recently and talking about girls and their tribe and how important that is, um, especially in sport and that connection that they get from that and how that really sort of drives their longevity, I guess, and their interest in, you know, whatever field of sport that they're interested in. Absolutely. So what you've noticed um, also came across in the in this large survey that that our colleague um, did do because it was it was about the yeah the connections the tribe as you said yeah. um, having fun learning new skills and tra- enjoyed training as much or even more than com- competition. So again, we sort of started to think what are some things that we can do that would be different to keep keep girls involved. But absolutely, that social element seems to be far more critical to girls. Well, not far more critical, but it's really it's really important to girls, that social connection with their peers, but also to have a coach that they like and trust. So I've also read that there's significant gaps in data and knowledge around mental health and wellbeing of female athletes in Australia. Just generally, we know that women are at greater risk of common mental health disorders than men regardless of whether they're athletes or not. So women are more likely to have depression and anxiety and some problems with eating as well. And again, that's quite common in, in athletes. Um, but we also find that some of those stressors about, as I mentioned before, about trying to manage insecure employment and finances, having to work multiple jobs if you're an elite athlete because you're not being paid as much as the men, um, wondering about how to fit, you know, being a parent in all of this and not having childcare or maternity leave aspects in some sports. And that exposure, I've said, to violence. So from a cyber abuse point of view, which Mary will talk to in a moment, but also um, just objectification, sexualisation in the media um, and also more likely to be exposed to direct forms of either physical or sexual violence through the sport as well. Yeah, so I think when we think the research that I really focus on is safeguarding from interpersonal violence in sports. So that's unsanctioned violence. So some sports are by nature violent sports. So that's quite different. We're not referring to violence that is sanctioned by the rules of the game. We're referring to broader types, so psychological, physical, sexual, or even neglect violence that occurs against children in the context of sport. And when we talk about this being a gendered issue, it's not just as black and white as saying women or girls experience more violence, it's actually a little bit more nuanced in that they experience different types of violence from different people to different extents. So we know broadly that psychological abuse is a massive stressor, especially for female athletes, um, and that goes from girls to women. And, you know, when we think, think about the social connectedness element and how important that is at the community sport level especially, but all the way up to elite, and then you realize that peer psychological violence is one of the more prevalent types, that just kind of puts a different spin on things and what we need to be thinking about in terms of safeguarding children and women athletes in sport. And in terms of cyber abuse, I think that's a whole different area. And some people would argue that it's just another form of violence and we don't need to separate it out. But I think we need to also think about where it occurs and how it occurs, because it's not as simple as just thinking about the Facebook or the website or the Twitter profiles. And it's not just elite athletes. It's where are the teams communicating? Is it on WhatsApp? Is it on, in my time, it was AOL Instant Messenger. But there's so many diverse apps, especially at the community level, where people are just trying to make things work, but they're not the systems in place to necessarily safeguard them. So there are inherent risks in that as well. Yeah, I I definitely understand what you're saying in relation to that because, you know, teams need a form of communication. WhatsApp seems to be the go-to for many um, teams in communicating with parents but also coaches. 
Um, and there are different platforms, there are different apps for holding that information as to when games are, what's happening, there's a schedule, there's news, there may be images of children as well and how do we sort of really set the boundaries around this as to appropriate use as well without anyone trying to be quite explicit that this is what you can use this for and this is what you can't use this for. Um, but it's, yeah, that data world just changes things in a, a really unique and different way, doesn't it? And we're just, it's moving so quickly, it's really hard to keep up. Yeah, and, and honestly, the, the kids are adjusting to it at a much more rapid pace than we are. They are out, outpacing us dramatically in technological um, influence. They can utilize those platforms a lot more easily and get around parental controls and locks and safeguards. So that means we kind of have to step up our game and be a level ahead as well. And I think at the community sport, that becomes really, really tricky because while we've got funding at the elite level and we've got things in place like eSafety Commission that should be those avenues, the awareness and understanding of those platforms to engage with that kind of safety net might not be there. What are your thoughts, actually? So a lot of tournaments and clubs have professional photographers that come in and take images of the children. Um, there's obviously an agreement that's been set up with them to be able to do that, and they've been an authorised media representative. Where where do your thoughts sort of sit with sharing of those images? Um, you know, I, I imagine and I know that not everyone has given permission for those images to be shared across social media. Um, that's that's a huge risk, isn't it? Yeah, so we haven't really done a lot of research in that space as well, but more broadly on sharing images of children, it is a really tricky situation, especially when they're already publicly available or there's some sort of assumed consent in the space. And I think what we're trying to think through here is how do we make that consent more explicit and knowledgeable? You want to make sure that people know what they're getting into. And I think sometimes in clubs, we're trying to make things work. We're trying to promote awareness of the activities we're doing. We're trying to engage with the youth and their families. And we just need to think, what are the safeguards in place for that engagement? And are people knowingly committing to those? And I think just being really mindful of the broader context, which we do as well. We know that we're working in an area where most people are there on a volunteer basis um, giving their time because it is important to them and their families that their children are involved and most people are doing that with the absolute best intentions. But it's about um, being clear about the, the guidelines and also communicating them in ways that it's easy for sporting clubs to operationalise and I think that's part of the challenge as well. It feels like it's overwhelming. They don't know how to approach where to start or feeling like they're doing this work, but how do you actually translate it in practice and how do you make sure that it's actually happening on the ground? So all of those things are a big issue. But also, as you mentioned before about the social media, I think, um, again, we're thinking about ways in which we want um, young people to stay connected and involved and doing something that's good for their wellbeing. And for a lot of young people, particularly girls, um, we know that a lot of um, social exclusion and bullying happens at that age, age range of in those adolescent years. And for some, sport's their safe place. And then when they get there and then now there's other ways that they can be bullied, particularly bullied online when, you know, it's almost 24-7 and there's no escape from it. That's um, a really, you know, dangerous place for someone to be for their own well-being. So, again, all of this is ways in which we could work with the sports, finding out actually the extent of the challenges, but then working with them to help find some clear solutions um, and to get rid of the ambiguity around some of these things too. 
There's also gender-specific factors impacting the safety and physical, mental and financial well-being of women athletes. How do you actually start to address and improve these things? Well, it's a really interesting question. I think more broadly we know that there's some um, strategies happening nationally. Like, for example, the AIS in the last couple of years have put out a female high-performance initiative which is really about understanding all of the physical, a um, bit more of the physical elements that impact women in particular. Obviously, I've spoken a lot already about pre- pregnancy and parenting and returning to sport, but the impacts of menstruation, how they're all linked um, to training and injury. So there's lots of education modules that they've put out for the sector, which is fantastic. And then the IOC a couple of years ago um, commissioned a mental health in sport statement. So it has a lot of guidance on how to screen for mental health difficulties in with athletes, how to look, how to do early detection, early intervention, and what are the main things that affect a- athletes compared to the general population. So there's a lot more interest and guidance in this area. There's a lot more understanding of the connection again between the, the mind and the body and understanding that it's okay. You know, having a wellbeing focus is still appropriate in high performance sport. Um, and so, again, that that filters down, as Mary said, there's this bi-directionality between grassroots sport and elite sport and what happens in one does influence the other. So I think this this setting in, in the elite sport of knowing that most organisations now have mental health and wellbeing strategies, they have some funding, it's always a challenge with the resources to put money into this, but the awareness has certainly grown about ways in which we can, um, what's needed to provide that scaffolding for athletes for their wellbeing um, and including things like financial planning and thinking ahead to transitioning out of sport, um, what are their post-sport retirement plans. That's a lot part of the their wellbeing programs now as well. So again, thinking more holistically about supporting an athlete because they're only an elite athlete for such a short period of time in their life. Another area that's, um, I guess, really important to consider, and as you were just sort of speaking about then, that female athletes don't always have adequate support and it is a big issue. What are some of the factors um, that add to that stress um, that really can impact on mental health and wellbeing? Well, certainly the I guess the the gap between some of the professionalisation in, in elite sports. So a lot of the men's sports have been professional for longer, which means there's a lot more wraparound care that gets provided um, and the and those athletes le- are less likely to be out of pocket of managing their own health and wellbeing. For women's sports, and again, we know that a lot of them are still growing, Mm -hmm. um, that they're attracting more interest and therefore more revenue. So, um, and there's a lot promising, but we know there's some sports, obviously tennis, for example, um, and some other sports have always been pay parity for for quite a while. Um, And then obviously in Australia, we've seen a salary increase to AFLW players last year. And some of those who are involved in some of our studies have said, you know, the the influence of that or the impact of that has been significant. So it means, for example, that they are less out of pocket for um, medical, um, some medical fees, massage, exercise physiology, all of those things that um, that they do have access to, but limited access to at the club level because there's not as much funding behind that. So for example, some players were saying, you know, they can access a, a masseuse, but the masseuse is there for two or three hours a week um, and and that's it. So, you know, you can't really get 40 of your players um, crammed in in that time. So um, I think the 
So the I guess the increase in salary but also the increase in the professionalisation will see that there'll be some more wraparound allied health that can be offered to athletes during that time. And again, I think that the, the flow-on effect of that is actually saying that it's really important for athletes to be thinking about managing their wellbeing. We've seen many times when they're trans- transitioning out of their career, the times when it does not go as well as they would hope and when we see some athletes going through some very significant difficulties because they haven't perhaps had that support to plan ahead to what happens when they transition out, not really sure how to manage their finances or they've had underlying mental health concerns that haven't been addressed um, during their time as an elite athlete. So again, that messaging and seeing that it's okay to be thinking about your wellbeing as part of a professional sporting career also helps with increasing help seeking in the general community as well and in grassroots sports. So um, we know, in, particularly in Australia, our, our elite athletes are role models and, um, and it's really important for, for them to be setting that example and for them to have the support to feel confident that there's reduced stigma about accessing mental health care and a whole range of things that will flow on to community attitudes. I guess, yeah, touching on role models, it's really important, isn't it? Because we want our young women um, and girls to engage with sport, stay connected with sport and have someone to be able to look up to that is a inspiration or for them to be able to see someone doing what they potentially can or want to do um, is really key in that longevity, I guess, too, in women in sport. Um, but also making sure that there's that lifestyle balance between for some people, sport is life, um, but beyond sport, you know, there is also life. So finding that balance in the everyday so that you've got your trainings, you've got your games, but you've also got something else um, that, you know, brings a spark of joy or adds to that balance in your life, whether it's family, friends, community, um, something creative, you know, some, there's some really important things as well. Absolutely. And I think you've touched on there that importance, well, for, for everyone um, to have that balance and to have some things to, I guess, in some ways not having, um, what's that old-fashioned saying, not having all your eggs in the one basket, but also having some ways in which you can release some of your stress and things that are enjoyable for you to do outside of whatever your job is, whether that is in sport or, or somewhere else, is absolutely critical to wellbeing. And I think, yeah, there's, a, there's a definitely an, an increased understanding in that from an athlete perspective over the last couple of years when we look at, you know, all the major sports and including the AIS in some of the policies they've put in place and the athlete wellbeing um, programs definitely look take that holistic approach of supporting the athlete. Can I just add as well at the community level, I think it's really about putting that human first before the athlete, before the sport participant, because there is a level of isolation and commitment that is almost necessitated by some of the elite sports. Uh, there's a level of dedication and perseverance that's required. But I think we need to distinguish between when we're asking people to cope with things that are absolutely unreasonable and can be prevented versus when we're asking with them to cope with the nature of the game. And at the community level, I think that means ensuring that it remains fun, ensuring that we're encouraging uh, diverse sports specialization, that people are being able to engage in different types of sport, not being forced to concentrate in one. I think we often think there's this distinct line between community and elite sport, but we've talked to people who started specializing at five years old. So where do you define it as delete? At what level of competition? Are, 
we've defined it in our study as a paid professional. But technically, some of these young athletes are already kind of steering in that professional journey, journey at five years old. So I think it's still thinking and remembering this is a child. And yes, we want the best performance out of them and we want them to strive for the best, but we also want them to be balanced and supported and encouraged. And that's where I think we can really at the community level start to re-engage with recognizing these are children playing a game. At the end of the day, that's what it is. Yeah. So that being said, what sort of top tips would you have for parents in supporting their children? Yeah, so I think one of the recent studies that we've actually done and um, also has been broadly supported by Play by the Rules, the champion of community sport, is all around when children come forward and speak about experiences, when they speak about not having as much fun or not wanting to go and practice. I would really encourage parents to ask more questions dig into those harder conversations. Maybe don't just drop a casual, oh, it'll be okay, it'll be better tomorrow, but actually go into those conversations. There's a national campaign on right now by Play Play by the Rules that's called Start to Talk. And it's all about encouraging parents and the sporting community to have those conversations about what safety in sport means. And as a safety in sport researcher, that's probably my number one thing is when we see things that make us a little bit uncomfortable at the community sport level, at our home field, by a coach, by a spectator, by a parent, or maybe even by ourselves that we're questioning a bit later. We go into that a little more and we ask the kids what's going on and we take note of behavior changes. And if they don't want to play that sport, we let them exit it out. I think part of it as well is differentiating what we wanted for ourselves or what we want for them from what they actually want. And part of that is being prepared to listen. Yeah, I think that's a tricky one, isn't it, where parents um, can become quite overly involved and it isn't always in the best interest of the children. Um, And sometimes there is that element of maybe something that they were unable to have for themselves or achieve for themselves in their own childhood. Um, But there can be a sort of a strong focus on driving this for their own children. Um, So it's I guess what you're saying is really just about parents being able to take a step back and look at it from a bigger picture and really focus on having the child as centre in the best interest of the child and work with them as to where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also a level of we've normalised a lot of behaviours over time and it's not just sport, but sport is our context for today. And one way to break out of that normalisation is to take a behaviour that you see and put it in another context. So consider a behavior that you're seeing on the field and imagine if a teacher was doing it to your child in a classroom as opposed to a coach. And if all of a sudden that behavior feels different to you, that's an idea that that's something we're maybe normalizing. So I think it's it's about both seeing what expectations we're bringing upon our children, but then also recognizing how our own experiences 10, 20, 30 years ago might also be playing a role in how we rationalize or normalize behaviors that we're seeing. Because I guess also a behaviour is, you know, is often a reflection of something else that is going on behind for that child or for that person that they may or may not have the ability to communicate um, either with their parents or with their coach or someone else in a sort of, I guess, more responsible position. Yeah, I think Alex could probably speak to that more broadly. But in, in the disclosure study we've done, it, it's absolutely that, that children often don't have the explicit words to name their exact experience, or at least not in a way that we might recognize the severity of it. They might not have that trusted adult that they can go to, or for that specific experience, maybe previous trials of disclosing that didn't go well. 
So there are limitations in that, but I think Alex can probably speak more broadly. The, well, one one thing that I probably would add to that is to um, is is that sense as well that understanding what a child is capable of of understanding at that developmental stage, and or perhaps also as happens to all of us in different things we've been exposed to, that the older that we get, we might reflect on that and think about things in a different way. So touching on what Mary said, definitely important to think about the stage that the child is at. But I think also too that, um, again, in the sporting context, it's quite unique in a way that we, because everyone is encouraged to, um, to, you know, work hard, put in, do their best, push to, to try to um, develop more skills or to get to that sort of next level if that's what they're wanting to do. Um, and in all of that, some of that messaging is really confusing for, for young children as well to think, Perhaps I'm just misinterpreting this. Perhaps I'm not being tough enough. Um, perhaps it's okay that I, you know, that my teammates are yelling at me or my coach is yelling at me because I've got to work harder. Um, and then as parents too, it can be really difficult to know is it something that we need to step into and have conversations about um, to protect our child or is it something that perhaps they will learn to negotiate themselves and where and how do we do that as parents too. So all of that is... You know, it's, it, I guess in some ways the sporting environment is really a microcosm for all the challenges that um, that parents do go through in making those decisions about helping their child develop autonomy and decision making. But on the flip side, I think we've seen enough from the studies that we've done um, that when there isn't that oversight and when a child doesn't feel safe to actually speak to their parents or someone else about something that's happening, um, it can have really serious consequences. So do you think that looking at early intervention and proactive options really helps with prevention? Yes, across whether we're talking about from mental health or whether we're talking about safeguarding, absolutely. So I think that that's sort of in some ways the holy grail is about saying how do we actually um, detect issues earlier, what programs can be in place to, to assist at earlier stages so that it doesn't get to a crisis or critical point um, and how can we all share that responsibility? as well, particularly if we're talking about it being at, a, at the grassroots or community sport level. Yeah, I think I would summarise the safeguarding research that we do, uh, especially at the community level, but kind of three tiers. We need to measure what we're actually experiencing at that level. Um, you have to measure it, otherwise you're just guessing. It also helps inform prevention. And we also need to shore up our response systems. So we need to have all of those in place if we're talking about broad range prevention. Because the first step is understanding what's happening. The second is being able to adequately respond and address those issues. And then we build in the necessary prevention. It doesn't mean they can't happen all at the same time and build up. We've got to address all of those and we can't really skip a step. And just to finalise, what sort of tips would you have for children, young people um, uh, playing sport? What top tips would you have for them around looking after their mental health and well-being? I think one of the things is um, we touched on when we were talking about the, the importance of fun and enjoyment. So finding a sport that you've got either people that you know or friends that, that you can play with or friends that you can make through that sport. Um, keeping an open dialogue with your parents about how you're enjoying it. Do you want to try something else? What's the commitment level? Perhaps you don't like competition, but you'd like to be involved in something that's more about skill development or hanging out with your friends, maybe slightly less formal sport. Um, so I think that that's some of the things to you know have conversations about. But also too, we know generally that a lot of children um, 
their timetabling um, is quite full on. There's a lot of things happening in their lives. Um, it's very different from, um, I, I think, from, you know, even from when I grew up where there'd be hours after school where there might be one sporting activity that, that night but not, you know, instrument practice or, you know, homework club or a whole range of other things. So I think the important thing is too for parents and for children to ensure that they are getting enough sleep um, that's absolutely critical in this uh, stage of their development, um, good quality sleep and also um, eating well um, around this as well. So I think, you know, and sport, um, I mean, that's what we're passionate about is it for a bit to be an environment that whether it's the elite or at grassroots provides an opportunity and an environment for people to connect, to learn more about themselves, to be physically active to look after their well-being and to do that in a way that brings them happiness and keeps them safe. So if we can find all of those um, things in, in what children are looking for, but I think particularly it's got to be about the, just letting them experiment and try to find a sport that works for them, a club that works for them, um, not being scared of, of changing and, and finding a new location um, depending on what's happened because sometimes too a fresh start is all that um, we sometimes need to sort of take in, in, a, in to a, approach approach something in a different way. So I think all of those things of sort of flexibility, I think probably I'm, I'm sort of uh, talking around in a bit of circles now. So, but I think flexibility is probably the big, biggest thing I was trying to say there. <laughs> well, I think that is really important. And Alex and Mary, thank you both for joining us today. Really valuable information and important discussions that I think can continue for a, a very long time moving forward, but really valuable for parents and young people um, in sport. So thank you. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure yeah, being you. here. One white minute. Ever feel stuck? Does your body feel physically tense and you feel trapped? You know what? You're not alone. Others feel like this too. Hi, I'm Joe White, and right now I'm going to take you through 60 seconds that will help you feel a little less unstuck. This is One White Minute. Stand facing a wall with your arms stretched out and the palms of your hands flat against the wall. Make sure you gently lean your body forward towards the wall, a little like you would if you're using the wall to help you stretch your calves. Now, push your hands into the wall like you're trying to push it over. Push as hard as you can for 15 to 30 seconds. Then repeat three, four, or even five times. Once you've done this, gently take your time to stand. With your feet apart, relax your body. Make sure your feet are stable on the ground. Close your eyes for a moment. Now cross your arms over your body with your hand on the opposite shoulder. Feels a bit like a self-cuddle, doesn't it? Now move your hands down your arms from your shoulder to your elbow. Do this a few times and see how you feel. Pause beyond the court.